So we are going to finish the principle during the first hour. So we are going to continue to the pharmacodynamic. And today we are going to talk about the receptor selectivity and the drug uh, interaction between um, so the drug and the receptor. Most of the time we talk about receptor because most of the drug are acting by binding a receptor. But as I said, it's not the only mechanism of action of the drug is not only to bind receptor. We have drugs that are binding to enzymes. So if you remember from last week, the different uh, mechanism of action of drugs can also be by inhibiting an enzyme or some F chemical, um, chemical physical property. But in general, we will talk about drug and receptor interaction. Um, ideally, you want a drug that is going to only interact with only one type of receptor. And of course, that's the ideal situation. And you will see next week, no, not next week, but in two weeks when we start talking about drugs for um, depression or antipsychotic, that those drugs um, are actually binding to more than one type of receptor. They are anticholinergic, but they can also bind to uh, other receptors, and that's why you have more adverse effects, because they are not as selective as, as we would like them to be. So another concept is that the selectivity do not guarantee the safety. You know, even if you have one drug that binds only to um, one, yeah, question? Yeah, some are on certain tissue, but neurons you can have, you know, cholinergic, dopaminergic, glutaminergic on the same type of neurons. And so the drug can bind on all, all the different type of receptors. Uh, this volume of distribution doesn't have anything to do with the selectivity of the receptor because the volume of distribution is the way they get into the tissue and your receptor, they are extracellular most of the time. So it doesn't have to go inside the tissue. The volume of distribution, that means your uh, drug is going to you know, get stored into the cells. But it doesn't mean because they are inside the cells that they bind to the receptor. Because your receptor can be on the surface of the cell. It doesn't have to get inside to, to have this action. So volume of distribution refers to pharmacokinetic. And this is really pharmacodynamic, is the, um, once it's in the tissue or the cells, you want it to act on the receptor. And it doesn't, you know, like, if you have a high volume of distribution, it can be stored, but you want that drug to be released and act on the receptor. Mm -hmm. So it's a different concept. Does that make sense? Okay. And uh, so when a selectivity do not guarantee safety, what does that mean is that Let's say you have a drug that only binds to one type of receptor, only binds to um, adrenergic receptor. But if the binding is strong and they cannot be dissociated, so you're going to have a strong response and the, the response can last longer. So you can have you know, some uh, adverse effect if you have a lot of um, the drug that reach to the receptor, you're going to produce a higher response and you can also reach toxicity. So selectivity do not mean you're going to avoid um, toxicity. Now, the chemical structure, it's important um, 
for the selectivity of its receptor. And um, the, the chemical structure is actually going to determine the affinity of the drug for the receptor and its intrinsic uh, activity. You can make the analogy with a key and a lock. You want the key to fit inside the lock. So that's the same with your uh, drug. You want the drug that fits inside the receptor. So most of the receptors are um, big molecules. They are proteins. And your drugs are chemical. And you want the interaction between, uh, between the drugs and its receptor. And we're going to talk about all this. And that's why you know, minor modification of, this, of the chemical structure can have um, different results. And that's what pharmacologists and uh, pharmacists or chemists are doing is to look at the structure, the relation between the structure of the drug and the receptor to make it better and then to have a stronger effect. So most of the time, you have a prototype drug. And then the next generation is just the same you know, structure, and they just modify the different um, substituent on the molecule to make a better uh, binding with the receptor and have a better, uh, better effect. Or sometimes you can modify a drug, and instead of having an agonist action, you can make it into an antagonist just by modifying the, the chemical structure. And so an important concept is the stereochemistry. Uh, I don't know if you remember your chemistry classes, um, <coughs> but most of the, the drugs are organic compounds. That means they have carbon uh, atom. And if you remember, a carbon atom can bind to four different uh, constituents. And if it has four different constituents, that carbon can be a carbon uh, chiral. So that means um, it's a uh, it differs from its uh, mirror image, like your right and your left end. So that means those, um, th those molecules who have a carbon chiral, they are also called as uh, stereoisomer or enantiomers. Um, they are non-superimposed uh, mirror image. And it's also called as R enantiomer or S enantiomer. And if you are righty, you know that your right hand doesn't have the same effect as your left hand. So that's the same thing for those uh, enantiomer. Some can have the same effect, but most of them doesn't have the same effect to the receptor. So that means you can have one enantiomer that is active and the other one that is totally inactive. Or you can have one enantiomer that is active and the other one that is toxic. Um, and also those enantiomer has a uh, different half-life. Most of the drug, they are um, not pure um, stereoisomers. So that means you know, when you synthesize those drugs, it's really difficult to separate the R from the S form. And so when you, have, when you synthesize your drugs, most of the drugs, <coughs> it's a mixture of them. So that means you have maybe 50% of the drug in the case uh, when you have both enantiomer that are active, you have 100% of active uh, compound inside your uh, final product. But if you have your um, S enantiomer that is inactive, you might have 50% that are actually useless in your preparation. Because it's very hard to um, separate them and it's very expensive. So most of the time it's a mixture of both. 
some, you know, um, they are able to isolate them, and so you only have one um, an antiomer in those um, formulation. And I don't know if you heard about thalidomide. That's a very um, famous drug um, that has two different um, an antiomer. And in your handout, there is actually the data sheet for that drug. So um, thalidomide was used in the 70s, 80s as um, a drug to prevent morning sickness in pregnant women. And uh, what happened is that they didn't know that it was actually teratogenic and caused birth defects. So there are a lot of uh, babies that were born with a short limb or even uh, absence of the limb. So the drug was withdrawn uh, in many countries. And surprisingly, when I was preparing the lecture, I noticed that actually the FDA reapproved it in uh, 1998. So that's why you have the data sheet. It's actually uh, from drug at um, FDA. And you can see, so they have all those black box warning, do not use during pregnancy. You have to avoid it in, uh, in women, of course. But the reason is why is because it's effective against some complication in uh, leprosy, and so that's the only drug that is um, effective for now. So they reintroduce it, and uh, it's still used here. Um, so you have the data sheet, and on those data sheet you can also see they have all the different pharmacokinetic for the drugs, absorption parameter, metabolism, the clinical trial that were used. So that's a good review. Uh, for the, those three weeks of uh, principle. So the thalidomide drug, the physical drug, is actually the it is a racemic mixture? Yeah. And then so it was the S antimer that was associated with the adverse event? Yeah, because so the, the formulation con contained both of those enantiomers, and one is actually teratogenic, so a way to avoid it would be to isolate the R enantiomer and has a pure uh, enantiomer, so you would only have the beneficial effects of the compound rather than have uh, both. But maybe it's too difficult, you know, to separate them, uh, like chemically. Uh, the, the chemical structure might be too difficult to isolate. Now the theories of drug uh, receptor interaction. So the first theory is like the simple occupancy theory, which is very simple. You would think that if you only have one receptor that is uh, occupied by the drug, you have a smaller effect, and then the more receptors that are occupied, your effect is, uh, yeah, the, the response is, big, is becoming uh, bigger and bigger, and once all the receptors are occupied, that's when you have the maximum effect. But in fact, the drug not only they uh, bound to the receptor, but they have their own intrinsic activity, and they also have uh, an affinity. And by saying that, you don't have to have all the receptor to be occupied in order to have the maximal response. So in the reality, there are so many receptors on the cells, they don't have to be all occupied in order to have the maximal response. And what is the affinity is the strength of attraction between the drug and its receptor. So the tendency of the drug to bind to the receptor, like the key fits in the lock, so that's how uh, the affinity works. And that affinity we'll see on the next slide depend on the different uh, type of uh, bonds between the drugs and its receptor. 
And this affinity actually reflects also the potency of the drug. If the binding is strong, you're gonna have uh, a potent drug. Now the other property of um, the drug is its intrinsic activity. That means the ability of a drug to activate its receptor upon binding. So again, with the analogy of the key and a lock, if your key fits, but you are unable to turn and open the door, that doesn't work. If you are able to open the door, that's the effect that you want. So that's the same thing with your drug. Not only you want the drug to fit to the receptor, but you want the drug to produce a response and activate the receptor. And so the intrinsic activity uh, reflects the efficacy of the drug. Now, as I said, they have to, the drug has to uh, fit to the receptor and you have different chemical bonds. As I said, um, most of the receptor are proteins and so you want to have the interaction between the chemical structure and a protein. And those different type of uh, bonds are listed on this slide. So you can have ionic bond between negative and positive charges. Those ionic bonds are very strong so if you have a lot of ionic uh, bonds, you're gonna have a strong um, interaction between the drug and the receptor and the action, the duration might, might last longer. Uh, hydrogen, which is the interaction between an hydrogen atom and a nitrogen or a, an oxygen atom. And then you have the van der Waals force, which actually are weak interaction between dipoles. So uh, ionic are the strongest uh, type of bond and then um, van der Waal are the, the weakest one. And so the force is actually summed because sometimes it's not only one type of uh, force, you can have all three types. And the more bond you have, then you have a better fit and you have a higher affinity. If you have weak force, then you're gonna have a uh, short duration because the drug is not gonna stay for too long um, on the receptor. Now those binding interaction, as we mentioned earlier, they are reversible, you want them to be reversible. Now in some cases they are uh, irreversible. That's the case of aspirin, for example, which bind to an enzyme that is called COX for uh, cyclooxygenase and inhibit that enzyme that is produced by the platelet. And because it's irreversible, the only uh, enzyme that are gonna be free of drug are gonna be the one that are gonna be newly produced with the production of new uh, platelet. Again, not all of the enzyme are gonna be bind by aspirin, so that means you're gonna have some enzyme that are free of drug and some that are uh, bound to aspirin. And then after the new cycle, you have more platelet and new uh, cyclooxygenase that are free of drugs. Now, what is the difference between an agonist and a partial agonist? So two types of uh, agonists. You have what is called the full agonist. And a full agonist is gonna mimic the endogenous uh, compound. So for example, if you have an agonist of acetylcholine, when that drug binds to the cholinergic receptor, it's gonna produce the exact same effect as acetylcholine. 
Um, those full agonists have affinity because they can fit to the receptor and they have an intrinsic activity because they can activate the receptor and produce the same effect as the, um, the endogenous compound. And again, they don't have to bind all the receptor in order to produce uh, the maximal uh, response. Partial agonists, they act on the same receptor as the endogenous compound. So again, if it's a partial agonist of, um, as, as of cholinergic receptor, they bind to the same cholinergic receptor, but they are not going to produce the same exact effect as cholinergic, as acetylcholine is going to be weaker, a weaker effect. So they have an affinity because they can bind to the receptor and they can also activate the receptor. So they have an intrinsic activity but the activation is not gonna produce the maximal uh, response compared to a full agonist. Yeah, so they're ligand, but the, the, the response that they produce compared to the endogenous compound is different. A full agonist is gonna produce the same response and the partial is gonna produce a partial response. And I'm gonna show on the next slide, I have an example. Um, and also many drugs, they are actually antagonists. For example, uh, the beta blocker, which are beta adrenergic um, antagonists. They block the beta uh, adrenergic receptor, but some has some intrinsic activity. So that means they can also act as norepinephrine and have some uh, agonist property. This is interesting for patients, for example, who has um, asthma because beta blocker can trigger uh, bronchospasm, but the fact that they have some intrinsic activity, they can actually reduce um, the bronchospasm because it's gonna have the same effect as norepinephrine. Um, and so this is the example between a full agonist. So you see you have the, uh, the dose, which is a logarithmic uh, scale. And then that's the case of some uh, opioid drugs. So methadone, you probably know it's used for um, patients who are uh, heroin addict and want to um, withdraw from heroin addiction. So it's a um, mu opioid uh, receptor agonist and produce the maximal response. Buprenorphine is also an opioid, but you see for the when you increase the dose, you will never uh, reach the maximal response as a full agonist. And then naloxone, which is used to treat um, opioid intoxication, is actually an antagonist. So you see, even if you increase the dose, you don't produce any opioid response. And that's what I have here. So an antagonist binds to the receptor and block the, the receptor, block the effect of the endogenous compound. So you don't you don't produce uh, the response of the um, agonist. It has an affinity, but doesn't have an intrinsic activity. It cannot activate uh, the receptor and produce the effect of the endogenous compound. There are two different types of antagonists, the competitive antagonist, and then you have non-competitive ones. The competitive, that means because it's competitive, it can be overcome. So when you have an, an agonist in presence of an antagonist, if you increase the dose of the agonist, you can actually displace the antagonist and obtain the same uh, response if, if you increase the dose. And I have this on the next slide as well. And the non-competitive, non even if you increase the dose of the agonist, 
you are not able to reach the same uh, response in the presence of um, the antagonist. So you see the curve A is the uh, agonist alone. On the right panel, so you have the agonist alone. And then uh, the green curve, so the B1, if you increase the dose of the agonist, actually B is the agonist in the presence of an antagonist, a low dose of uh, an antagonist. And you see if you increase the dose of your agonist, you are still able to produce the maximum uh, response. Now, if you have a higher dose of your antagonist, you need even a higher dose of agonist to produce the same response. So that's the uh, curve C. Now, on the left side, that's an example of an agonist in the presence of a uh, non-competitive antagonist. So A is the agonist alone. B is the agonist in the presence of a low dose of antagonist. So you see, even if you increase the dose of your agonist, you cannot reach the maximal um, response as on curve A. And then C is in the presence of a higher dose of antagonist. So same thing, if you try to increase the dose of your agonist, you don't reach uh, the maximum response. And then these, the, uh, the antagonist alone, so they don't produce any response because they are antagonists. And then, um, to conclude the pharmacodynamic is um, the concept of therapeutic index. So the therapeutic index is the ratio between uh, the lethal dose over the um, effective dose. So the lethal dose is actually a dose that is gonna be lethal in 50% of the animal tested. And the um, effective dose is actually the dose that is gonna produce a therapeutic response in 50% of the population. So if those two, um, if ED50 and uh, LD50 are way apart, so that means your therapeutic index is wide and they are pretty safe because it's the same thing as the therapeutic range. If you give a dose of 10 milligram, you can increase until 100 milligram until you're gonna reach 50% uh, of um, lethality in your population. But the other example, you see you don't have a wide uh, therapeutic index because after if you give 30 milligram of the same drug, you are gonna reach um, a lethal level in 50% of your population. So you want to have drugs with um, wide therapeutic index. The one that has a short therapeutic index need to be monitored in order to avoid um, toxicity. And this is a, an index that reflects the safety of the drug. Do you have any question regarding the pharmacodynamic principle? <coughs> now we are gonna talk about drug interaction. We already covered this in the <coughs> previous week. So these slides are really summary for your uh, study guide because uh, we know the consequences already of drug and drug interaction. So it can be either an increase or a reduction of the therapeutic effects or an increase of um, adverse effect. Um, the mechanism of drug and drug interaction, we also covered this on the first week and last week. Uh, we know that those interactions can occur during the absorption phase, distribution phase, or uh, metabolism and excretion. 
But you can also have interaction, uh, pharmacodynamic interaction. So if you have the same drug, if you have two drugs that bind the same receptor, you can also have uh, interaction there. Um, so this is some example of drug that can have an effect on the absorption. And once we cover those class of drug, I will refer to the principle. So hopefully you will remember <laughs> what uh, those principles are about. So distribution, we talk about protein binding and drug competition for the, the protein, uh, the plasma protein. Now, if you have uh, a, rich, a high protein meal that can interfere uh, with some drugs such as L-DOPA, and in two weeks when Dr. Tang is gonna talk about Parkinson treatment, he will talk about uh, L-DOPA. And then, you know, interaction um, with metabolism. So hopefully you understood, understood the concept of uh, enzymatic inducer and um, inhibitor. And then excretion, we also cover this with the influence of the pH and the excretion of drugs. Now, not only you can have interaction with um, drug, but you can also have some drug food interaction or some herbal uh, preparation. And that's the same uh, principle. Those, uh, the food can interfere with um, the drug at any step, absorption, uh, metabolism, excretion. And these are some examples. So you know that um, tetracycline needs to be avoided with um, calcium and um, because it reduces um, the absorption of tetracycline, but also can stain uh, the tooth if you give tetracycline, um, because calcium is abundant in the tooth. Some juice, because of their acidity, can uh, decompose uh, some drugs, such as penicillin and erythromycin. And we'll see, actually Dr. Strelo will cover next week the antibiotic. Then monoamine oxidase inhibitors are drugs that are used for depression. And uh, the monoamine oxidase actually um, are also involved in the metabolism of tyramine, which is a compound that is abundant in cheese. So patients who are taking uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, are, uh, it's recommended for them not to eat a lot of cheese or wine because the metabolism of the cheese and the wine is gonna be also impaired and can cause severe uh, hypertensive crisis. But once we talk about uh, those uh, class of drug, we will refer to that interaction. No grapefruit juice is also well known for its interaction with drugs. Grapefruit juice can uh, interfere with the SIP enzyme and can interfere then with the metabolism of drug. And actually one glass of uh, grapefruit can inhibit the SIP enzyme for uh, 24 to 48 hours. So drugs that are metabolized by the same enzyme, it's always good to ask the patient what is their lifestyle if they, have, if they drink a lot of grapefruit juice. I don't think it's you know, something that everybody drinks every morning, but <laughs> um, that's something that you have to be aware of. Now the adverse um, drug reaction and medication error. 
I think I told you at the first week of, of class when I was in Belgium, actually I was part of a pharmacovigilance program in the um, public health, the Ministry of Public Health in Belgium. And so I just want to you know, promote awareness about uh, medication error and hopefully in your practice, if you see any adverse reaction, um, I'm encouraging you to report it. It's, you know, it's just on a voluntary base but that can really help, you know, future patient. And also the decision that, you know, is made by the FDA, they are actually referring to the pharmaceutical company to change their data sheet. And as we talked about, during the phase three, it's a small population. And when it goes to marketing, an, if, an adverse effect that was maybe rare during a phase three re, uh, clinical trial might be might become more frequent. And even if it's already known, it's good to report those um, adverse effects that are known just to show that it's not rare, but actually it's more frequent that we think. And so when there is a new, a new adverse effect or a severe adverse effect that is reported, let's say um, I have a former Macken student, she said that she observed uh, an adverse reaction with vancomycin so next week we'll talk about it. It's called the Redman syndrome. So it's a well-known adverse effect, but it's a severe reaction. So that would be my recommendation is to report to the FDA that the patient um, experienced that uh, reaction. Because again, as I said, it might be more frequent that um, it was, that is, it's actually known for the moment. So you want to know if that adverse effect occur uh, immediately after it takes the drug, so then it's more likely to be caused by the drug and not uh, caused by something else. If it abates when the drug was actually uh, stopped, and then if it's reappeared after um, reinstituting the drug. And so the medication error, actually there is at least one death every day in the US and an average of 1.3 million Americans uh, are actually experiencing uh, medication error. So you want to reduce those medication error and in your practice, there are different ways that are in place such as the use of uh, barcode, computerized order. Then now you have clinical pharmacists to assist the team and do the, um, the round with the physician and the nurses and use barcode, but don't only rely on the pharmacist and the doctor. Make sure when you have to administer something that the calculation is right and um, that you give it at the, at the right time as well. And this is how you can report um, the adverse reaction. So it's online, um, there is the link there. And you just, you know, you can file this electronically <laughs> You have to, you know, answer different type of question, as I mentioned, how long after this occur, the age of the patient, what is his uh, medical condition, if he's taking other drugs, and then the consultant can determine whether or not it's linked to the drug or something else. Now, drug therapy in uh, pediatric patient. We also talked about this. Um, when we talk about uh, metabolism and excretion, so it's also a summary of the difference um, in terms of uh, pharmacokinetic in neonate and infant. 
Um, this is for your information. You don't need to know this um, equation, but once you're gonna do your clinical uh, rotation at Children's Hospital, <laughs> Tiffany can confirm, <laughs> you have to know uh, this. But for my class, it's just for your information. And then geriatric patient. Of course, since I work on Alzheimer's, you know, I'm more about uh, gero. And um, also because the population is, you know, ages, um, um, also want to make sure that you get the right information uh, regarding um, geriatric population. So they are seven times more um, likely to get adverse effects than healthy or adults, uh, younger adults. 60% um, of uh, hospital admissions, they are also 50% of all medication-related deaths were reported with uh, elderly patients. And um, as the result of aging on, um, on the renal function, but also <coughs> because they have polypharmacy most of the time, they also have multiple pathology. So they are more at risk to develop drug interaction or um, adverse effects than other uh, younger adults. And then there is an increase in individual variation, poor adherence. Um, sometimes they don't have the adequate uh, supervision for the long-term uh, care. So all those factors um, can influence the risk of developing adverse effects in elderly population. In terms of absorption, their rate of absorption may be uh, slower. They have an increase in the body fat, so drugs that are lipophilic are most likely to be uh, stored into uh, the fat. They have a reduction in their uh, lean body mass, reduction of total body water, and uh, they also have a reduction in their protein in the plasma protein concentration, less albumin. So protein that bound to those, uh, a drug that bound to those plasma protein are more likely to cause adverse effects if the, the plasma protein concentration is reduced. In terms of metabolism, uh, their metabolism is impaired, their liver function is impaired, and then the, that can lead to an increase in the half-life. And then excretion, because most of the drugs are excreted through the kidney, and as you age, your renal function start to uh, not to be as effective, so you might increase the risk of uh, drug accumulation. And then you also have some pharmacodynamic um, effects. For example, the beta-adrenergic uh, response, so in elderly, uh, there is less beta-adrenergic receptor, and also the affinity of the beta-adrenergic uh, antagonists are actually uh, reduced, so that means the beta-adrenergic are not gonna be as, as effective in elderly compared to uh, younger adults. One thing that you have to monitor with elderly patients is the, the renal e excretion and the parameter that is measured is the uh, clearance of uh, creatinine, which is a protein that is excreted um, by the kidney. And by measuring the creatinine clearance, you can determine how their uh, renal function is. And so they are at higher risk of drug-induced adverse effects. So it's <coughs> our effort as a healthcare uh, provider 
to uh, optimize their drug therapy. Otherwise, there will be no country for old men if we don't take care of them. <laughs> so we can um, stop here. If you have any questions, just let me know.